Welcome to 50 Date Night Screams. I'm Amber Tresca. And I'm Mike Tresca. We're a married couple who decide to celebrate our 50th birthdays by watching some old movies. A lot of old movies. Join us as we watch 50 movies on our date nights and have fun dissecting them. As a bonus, each episode is accompanied by an original character I created and designed for use in your tabletop role-playing games. Many of the movies we watch are unrated, but this podcast is not. 50 Date Night Screams contains mature themes and is intended for adult audiences, so take care when listening. Plus, there are spoilers. Check the show notes to see where you can watch this movie before you listen. We're glad you're here. Have a seat, grab a glass of your favorite beverage, and get ready to scream along with us. This is Chief Murphy speaking. The Phantom is supposed to be somewhere here in the city. He is a most desperate criminal, a killer, a human tiger. Take no chances and shoot to kill. Hello and welcome to another episode of 50 Date Night Screams. This is episode 23, The Phantom, from 1931. Hey, my co-host is here with me. Mike, what is going on? Hi, beautiful. I'm sorry we inflicted this movie on both of us. <laughs> I'm sorry. You know what? From some of the things that I read, it was kind of considered a classic, and which is a little oddly seeming to me. But many of the actors were very famous in their time and did hundreds of movies. So yeah, this, this is a transitional film, which we will discuss uh, from because of how early it is, but it, it is a little bit like, it's good for you, I think. It's good for us to experience it, but it's it's tough going down. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it was only an hour and two minutes. You Felt can't longer. See. Yeah. <laughs> I'm taking off my second pair of headphones. You can't see that because this is a podcast, but that's an occupational hazard from being an audio editor that I'm like frequently have a second pair of headphones around my neck and then I'm so used to it that I forget that it's there. <laughs> All right, now that I have that out of the way, we can start going over the stats for this movie. The title is The Phantom. It is the 1931 Phantom. I did not even look up the years of other movies called The Phantom, of which there are several. This movie is in black and white. There is no mistaking it for the other Phantom movies. The director is Alan James, and it has a 4.3 out of 10 on IMDb. Kind wow. Of. M MDs, the MDBs are uh, being generous, I think, but okay. Do we say MDB? We do now. Don't we say IMDb? Oh, yeah, but I'm calling the MDBs, like the, the population that rates things on IMDb is the MDBs. Okay. It's a thing. I just made it. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> So, the hilarious tagline is, a group of people are stalked by a masked killer in an old mansion. <laughs> Not even trying. Maybe they were the first to do it. It's 1931. Uh, incorrect. That is incorrect, is what I would say about that. And listeners will see why. All right. Let's get into it. What a movie. All right. Our, our story starts out. At, at what? Where does it start out? A prison. At a prison. As so many, you know, I need a scoreboard. I didn't think of it previously. I need a scoreboard for how many of these movies have similar things. And the starting out in a prison is absolutely a trope, a, a commonality. Kind of come to expect it now. So It's kind of like in a probes bingo, which do we need to do content warnings? Thank you. Content warnings. All right. I got serious about content warnings this time. <laughs> you really I, did. <laughs> I actually went and looked up, which I should have done at the beginning of this podcast series, and only now, about halfway through, did I get serious about looking at what content warnings are being phrased as, as authors and content creators are, are making them and making their audiences aware. All right, so for this one, content warnings are kidnapping and abduction, mental illness and ableism, and trivial... Wow, this is a difficult word to say. <laughs> Let me give it another shot. <laughs> Trivializing mental illness. 
I I had written out, I had written these things, but I had written them slightly differently. I don't think there's a standardization for content warnings yet, but this is probably as close as we're going to get because I looked up what other people are doing in the space and this is this is what it is. So if these things are troublesome for you, I would suggest skipping this episode and then we will catch you next time. Back to the prison. Back to the prison where we all belong. Okay. Uh, and another thing that is very common is we're going, we're there because there's going to be an execution. Shocker. But the person to be executed, the executee, is that a thing? Execute. The executee? That's e- execute. Ex- the executee. <laughs> Definitely not. Okay. <laughs> He's a prisoner. We see him jump from the prison roof onto a train, which runs right next to the prison. Seems like a good idea. Convenient. Convenient. Now, there's a plane that's been flying around overhead too low. The prisoner on the train grabs onto a line that is being held by the plane, and the plane takes off, and the prisoner goes with it hanging from the plane. Can you describe that better? Did I, I feel like I'm not doing a good job. <laughs> this, this was a thrilling scene, but man, that was rough. It's, a, it's the phantom escaping. I mean, a lot of it narratively happens off camera. Camera, yeah. So there's a little bit like, he's escaping. And, and then there's this bizarro, like, it's sped up footage, which was not uncommon sort of in the 30s, where you sort of see the action scenes, which we will revisit at least one other time, uh, are sped up. But it, it's daring, right? It's, it's this phantom presumably on his way to be executed and ends up jumping from trains, planes, and presumably automobiles at the end. So he he pulls it off. It's just a very interesting and tonally different scene from the rest of the movie. So it, it is not this exciting. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Well, and what's what struck me too is how quickly this scene went by. And for 1931, it's a pretty good, you know, stunt sequence there. And I think in a movie today, they would have figured out how to draw this out for like 10 minutes. Yeah, totally right. This would be the centerpiece of an action movie. This would be a Tom Cruise scene where he's flailing around and jumping from vehicles in the air. Um, and it's sort of uh, almost like, a, just get it out of the way. We got to move on with the plot. But this is by far one of the most exciting parts of the film. So it's just interesting. Again, 1931, different mindset, as will become clear with the rest of the film. So a lot of our modern expectations are not necessarily going to apply here. So you got to give it a little slack, but it is definitely uh, tonally quite a shift from this to what is essentially old, uh, old dark house uh, comedy, which we'll talk about in a minute. It was really, um, I was shocked that they did this and they did do it. I looked it up because I did wonder for a hot minute if it were stock footage yeah, me too. Uh, some of so some of so it isn't. It's not stock footage. It's not stock footage. Wow. They actually did this stunt. I don't know who it was that did this stunt. I'm presumably not the named actors. Presumably it was real stunt people. But yeah, I mean they pulled that shit off. That's a lot of work. It's a lot. It was a lot of work <laughs> a lot for of this work. movie. <laughs> I mean, I want to put it in a different movie because of all that work. But okay. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, it, that was. That was pretty cool. So, yes, this is the phantom uh, who is escaping. So, a human tiger who needs to be shot on sight. Oh, my goodness. According yeah. to the police. That, according to the cops. Yeah. So the next thing that happens is that the phantom is going to go after the district attorney, of course, because, uh, again, we're back as here one again. Does. As one does. And the district attorney's name is John Hampton. The Phantom sends him a telegram. This is wild. The Phantom sends him a telegram and says, I'm coming to your house, but don't try to trap me. What the fuck? <laughs> so, so the police give him a bodyguard, and the police give his daughter a bodyguard because she lives with him, and her name is Ruth. Ruth is a, a reporter. reporter. She's a society reporter, and she actually has an event to attend that night. So she's not there for a little while. And we find out uh, her editor's name. I don't think we ever get the name of the paper, but her editor's name is Sam Crandall. And there's a scene between the two of them where he's questioning her about her boyfriend. And then he tells her that he loves her. It's really kind of sad because Ruth has a boyfriend, secret fiance. Once again, another thing that we that pro- crops up a lot. Uh, and the boyfriend's name is Dick Mallory. And they've been waiting for Dick to get a promotion. 
before they can tell Ruth's father that they want to get married because he's like a low-level reporter at this point. So here's the conceit. Sam, who is Dick and Ruth's boss, if he were to give Dick a promotion, Dick and Ruth could move forward with their relationship and get married. But Sam is in love with Ruth. So there's a lot going on there. Another thing that is in a lot of these movies is this romantic entanglement where you've got one woman and multiple men. She's usually the daughter of someone who is important, so she can't just date whomever she wants or get married to whomever she wants. The only difference now is that this time it's the two reporters who are in love and not a reporter and a cop. And there's supposed to be some tension that essentially the editor does not have to grant this, right? So there's a little bit of whoever gets the big scoop is going to make all this money. I never understand this. I never understand this prize money that's at the end of whoever gets the story because I don't think that's how newspapers work. But they certainly make, you know, because he's getting a raise, I guess that's supposed to, how much of a raise it could possibly be that now they can get married where before they couldn't, I don't know. But he's definitely got sort of this moral dilemma. And he, this editor is tremendously involved in this way more than any other movie editor we've seen. He's like on the spot and involved more than you would expect. But I think that's, that's one of the things that just, you know, again, to sort of move the plot along and potentially do the will they or won't they conversation around whether or not he's going to get this raise depending on what the editor was it sam does he could not give it to him and say you know i was involved or there's other reporters involved so i guess that's part of his involvement but he's he's just around a lot the other thing though i want to talk about is the actress aileen ray who plays ruth i don't know how you felt about her voice <laughs> well okay i am very sensitive to voices um Maybe I'm overly picky. I will I will fire something. I will fire a piece of content <laughs> and not watch it or not consume it. This goes for audiobooks. It goes for voiceovers on documentaries. It goes for podcasts. If someone's voice is really troublesome for me to listen to, I will not continue. And it doesn't happen a lot, but it happens every so often. And her voice didn't bother me. It was a little bit of a, oh, okay, uh, when when she opened her mouth. It sounded almost like an affectation. Mm -hmm. If you told me that the director told her to speak that way, I would believe you and that that was not her real voice. But apparently it was her real voice because she, this being 1931, this was her first talkie, I believe. And her and, last. And her last. So... But uh, truthfully, I really don't feel like her voice was that bad. So I, I don't truly understand. I feel like it had to have been something more. She didn't really have a lot of lines in this movie, even though she was on screen a lot. Yeah, it's unfortunate. I mean, I, I could see it. I could see where people would say, I don't know if she can hack it. Whether or not that's fair or appropriate is a different thing. But, you know, certainly people were figuring out, as we we will see for the rest of the production, not just Aileen, the... Production was not the same, certainly with sound and the idea of a score. So we hadn't mentioned this either. There's no music in this at all. It's just deafening silence, footsteps, occasional grunting. That's it. It's just you and your thoughts and some people on a screen. And again, this is because you are transitioning from silent movies where this wasn't a concern. So I think there's a lot of things being figured out. It's unfortunate because I think the actress did fine. I don't think she did a bad job, but it tanked her career so she didn't make the transition and for all we know she may not have wanted maybe they said you know you need to work on your voice like change your register and she didn't want to do it yeah i mean you can take voice lessons right what in the world is the matter with you oh i'm so scared oh dear you're always afraid of something haven't i told you there's nothing to be frightened of in our own home but i don't like this place I wish we were back in our dear old home. Oh, Lucy, don't be absurd. So totally tangentially hard right turn, Mike, because something occurred to me about this is that during the silent films, there was often a real live pianist in the theater, right? Yes. And I don't know what years that was common, but wasn't it your fraternal great-grandfather? Yeah. who was 
a pianist in a movie theater. That's right. That's what he did. And my dad's a musician. Um, so apparently runs in the family a little bit in terms of musical, you know, interest in specifically the piano, but he did, that's what he did. Yeah. My, my dad's dad was employed as a musician, which was apparently a legitimate job. And you can imagine it was not only common, it was probably pretty busy work, right? So for every time there was a film, you had to play the music along with it. So for all we know, uh, maybe that was an expectation still for films like this. That's what I was going to say. Do you think for this movie that it was at this turning over time where they didn't put a score or music in the movie, in the soundtrack, but maybe they still had a pianist in the theater who was playing something along with the movie? Because I could also see it being a situation where movie theaters were like, you know, we have these people that we employ full time to do this, and they may have had several people, right? I can't imagine one person being the only pianist for a theater that was a busy theater. Like, we can't get rid of these people. This is their job. Like, I could imagine that being a thing. Yeah, honestly, it's probably a lot like a church organist, actually, where you have sort of different playings and people come in and you have sort of your regulars who run the show uh, behind the scenes. But I, I think it probably was less pushback on worrying about having people have jobs or not as as it was directors not being accustomed to doing that, either not having a budget or just not thinking about it because that wasn't a thing. Uh, one of the pieces we definitely heard was a lot of the theaters were not equipped with particularly good sound anyway. So you could do all that sound work and have it go for naught because it may not have been particularly easy to hear. Um, so the theaters were just being converted to sound, right? You could just because you make a movie and sound doesn't mean the theater chains are all ready to receive it too. So it was definitely a stage of transition for everybody. Right. Well, it's certainly something we can because I just thought of it. I didn't do any research on it, but it's certainly something <laughs> that we can that we can look into and and um, is of interest to us because of you know knowing that your your great grandfather did that for a living which I think is super interesting. Yeah. All right. Anyway, so now back to our story. The cops now go over to the DA's house because the Phantom says he's coming, right? So they're suspicious of everybody. They're suspicious of the butler. They're, they're just like suspicious of everybody. And the DA ends up sitting in his study and he's like alone. He's just like sitting there with a gun. It's kind of hysterical. <laughs> like he's just waiting, you know, like he's in the OK Corral or something, you know, and now here's where it start. The comedy starts coming in. We hear a scream, and it's the maid. She was scared by the cat. She was scared by the cat. She's in the hallway screaming. The DA comes over there and says, stop your screaming and go up to Ruth's room and hang out in there, which the maid does. And there's a door that opens while she's in Ruth's room. Now, again, we're this movie that started out with this thrilling action sequence could only imagine like I really want somebody to score it you know like maybe somebody has but I'm like I really I want to know what the score is to that daring escape and I would also like it to be 10 minutes longer but anyway <laughs> so but now this comedy is coming in coming in with this maid who is completely overacting in the style of a silent film which we've all seen if we haven't seen a proper silent film of which I've seen many we've seen commercials or other popular culture things which are evoking a silent film so we understand you know that they're black and white and that the actors overact and they you know clutch their pearls and you know all of that kind of thing but anyway i think it was supposed to be funny i know it was supposed to be funny <laughs> the question is like who was laughing at this and were people in 1931 in the theater laughing at this gal screaming and fainting on the steps yeah, and it's interesting because she reminds me a lot of Olive Oil. I, I've read in different places, she this actress may have been the inspiration, but I, I'm starting to blend movies here. Um, she's not the only one. And, of course, a lot of times the older movies, Popeye being one of them, Tom and Jerry, Bugs Bunny, were actually really taking their cues from these films, right? So that's where a lot of them were. They were the inheritors of this or contemporaries, frankly. And then continued it so that we don't know that kind of humor except in broad, broad humor, except in cartoons. And that's, I think, why it's so dissonant when you watch it, because you're a little bit like, what the heck? Like, it's really drawn out. It's really sort of overacting. Um, it's sort of out of character from the other characters. That's also the other thing. It's not. This isn't broadly a comedy. This character in particular is 
ridiculous uh sort of in his three stooges way but again the three stooges it's a comedy so you get it there's like a it's like they walked into a set it's a little bit of a scooby-doo thing where you've got like funny characters in the middle of something very serious and you're like i they don't really it doesn't really lighten the mood i think it was supposed to and i can't that's probably the question i don't even know if it's supposed to be funny so much as it's supposed to what they would probably consider to be relentlessly grim or scary and they're trying to punctuate that a little bit with comical reactions. But uh, this goes on through the whole film. Right. It never ends. <laughs> For, uh, yeah. Okay. So now Dick, the boyfriend. I can't. Whatever somebody's named Dick. I just can't. Um, all right. So Ruth's boyfriend, Dick, shows up at the house. But he doesn't say who he is. He's acting really funny. And the DA and us too, because we don't know what Dick looks like yet, we think he's the Phantom. Dick actually takes the DA's gun, and the DA is, like, hitting a panic button under the desk, which I'm like, wow, 1931, dude had a panic button in his house, in his study. And Dick's like, aha, that won't work because it was disconnected. So all of this looking looking bad, right? So now Ruth comes home. She's been out at an event that she has to cover for the paper. But she doesn't see Dick. She says goodnight to her dad. She goes up to bed. So now all the cops rush in. They think that Dick is the Phantom, but but he's not, obviously, because the Phantom is upstairs in Ruth's closet because there is a hidden stairwell leading up to Ruth's room and through like a closet. The door, I think, is actually in the wall. So um, it doesn't it doesn't look like it should go anywhere. All her clothes are in there, but there's a stairwell back there and the Phantom is in there. So the maid opens the closet door, finds him in there, and she faints dead away. So, but Ruth is in the room, so she she grabs the phone, and she doesn't get much out before she puts the phone down because the Phantom is coming after her, and he's threatening her. This the Phantom. He's got like this, t- like a like a hat on, and his face is covered with some kind of a black mask. And he's got like a trench coat on. I feel like this is almost like the archetype, like the first iteration or one of the first iterations of this masked uh, character with a hat and a trench coat that we're supposed to be scared of. And we know that just because we've seen it in so many places. But it turns out Ruth's a badass bitch. She's got a gun under her pillow. So she picks up the gun and she starts going, stop or I'll shoot. And I'm kind of like, just fucking shoot him. Um, <laughs> but I mean, the dude's literally in your bedroom. Uh, she doesn't shoot him. Dick comes up to Ruth's room. He uh, checks on the maid. He almost trips over her. And here's kind of like a little skippy part in the movie where I'm not exactly sure what happened here. Because the next thing you see, the phantom is hitting Dick over the head. And then he's out. He's down. The cops are all downstairs questioning the butler, wasting time. And Dick he comes to. The phantom is still around. So now he's shoots at the phantom and then the phantom goes through this hidden door and down the steps and then dick chases him now we've got the maid screaming again (laughs) and then her boyfriend the chauffeur apparently comes upstairs two of them apparently uh together and more his name is shorty his name is shorty yeah also a famous actor like like the leads here are all like very famous and did lots and lots of movies and were well known the, the man who played Shorty was well-known in the And if you thought movies. the maid was bad, well, have I got news for you, because we've got Shorty, who's just like her, only extra. <laughs> so they're together. There is a theory that the Phantom's ridiculous outfit with his spindle fingers. I love the spindle fingers. I just love to Thank say Thank you. I could fingers. not remember the name. You kept saying it when we were spindle watching the film. Fingers. I couldn't remember what it was spindle called. Spindle fingers is essentially actually a parody. So in other words, this whole film is a parody because the actor who plays that character, as you said, the archetype, was in an adaptation of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde earlier. And the feeling is that he was essentially like literally same outfit, same kind of uh, attire, same spindle fingers. So if that's the case, that can't be an accident. Uh, But you wouldn't know this. Again, this is, as we've mentioned, there was sort of an era where Tarzan was like the Star Wars of movies, where everybody just imitated Tarzan. 
And Jekyll and Hyde may have been that in the 30s. We don't know in the 20s. I mean, there is uh, certainly a, one Hammer film that – not Hammer, Universal there film. Were two, there were two Jekyll and Hyde right. movies competing at the same time. Right. So that may well have been some of that in the background where you sort of threw that in um, because it was popular in movie theaters. So, again, not, sort of lost on modern audiences, but really an interesting theory. It, it sort of makes it a little better if the humor is ridiculous because the whole thing is ridiculous. But, uh, yeah, so – Certainly, the, the he feels like a character that got transplanted from another horror movie and dropped in wholesale. Right. So, at this point, Sam, Ruth's boss, shows up in her room. <laughs> literally wrote in my notes. Not sure how he's there or why. And so, now the cops are also find the butler. They were questioning him. And now they find him bound and gagged. They're still accusing him of being the phantom. There's a, One of the cops actually goes, I've seen men tie themselves up it's like what <laughs> i love that i love that like oh no don't trust him man he clearly tied himself up and you're like did he what I, and i'm like well do you have an active social life like <laughs> like what is going on here that you've seen men tie themselves up you know so interesting i want to know more from that guy anyway it would have livened up the movie but all right so then ruth is like i'm tired i'm going to bed as one does. As one does. Okay. All right. So now the cops now find Dick. They accuse him of being the Phantom. But Sam is there. So Sam's like, no, this is one of my employees, whatever. And he clears but it all up. Dick is being super sketch, right? I don't I mean, understand what he's clear. doing. It's so – this is – you know, this is going to be the, the woman you want to marry that you're in love with is her dad and you're being a fuck up. I don't understand. Well, I, I think Sam's way he clears this up is like I sent Dick here to sort of get the big story. So he's skulking around. No, he said Dick is trying to get a big story because he wants to prove himself. Okay, so Sam apparently excuses this, right? That's part of it. He's like, well, reporter's going to report. What are you going to do? And that's the argument. I mean, the fact that Dick hasn't been shot is astonishing because he he took the gun from the DA, right? Let's be clear. Snuck in through a window, was skulking around, doesn't immediately explain what he's doing or admit to it. I assume this has got something to do with Ruth, too, which is sort of an interesting spin on this. Maybe part of the reason he knows how to get in and out and be super sketchy I'm, pr- is I'm pretty sure super that sketchy. they were using that stairwell for some oh, rendezvous. This is the 30s, madam. I don't think we can discuss these things in public company. I don't know. Company. There was a lot of dudes in Ruth's room. <laughs> they all seemed to know how to get up there. <laughs> That's a different film. <laughs> I would I would watch that one, too. All right, so we've got that all cleared up, and do we? Well, (laughs) we we know that everyone that they've thought was the Phantom in the past in the first thirty minutes of the movie is not there, and the Butler's not helping either. Like the Butler was a suspect. He was acting a little weird too. He's weird too, but whatever. Anyhow. So Dick's like, look, this is how the Phantom is getting in and out of the house. So now Dick goes upstairs again in Ruth's room. Like I said, I, they've been using this staircase apparently. They don't say it, but it looks to me like they were. It's fine. You know, go with your bad self. So Ruth says she thinks the Phantom might be with someone named Dr. Weldon. Apparently the Phantom told Ruth that she would be good for Dr. Weldon's experiments. We didn't hear this. This was just something that happened that we did not hear in the movie. So it's news to us. And Dick says, oh, he must be talking about, this is where the content warning comes in, he must be talking about the sanitarium where Dr. Weldon was practicing before he disappeared. A woman was apparently murdered there and the body was found and then Dr. Weldon disappeared. All right. So now Dick and Ruth are like, let's go there. Again, we're in Scooby-Doo. So they're off to do their... Scooby-Doo thing. And now we go back to Sam. Sam actually tells the DA about Ruth and Dick. Super shitty. Yeah. Yeah. Super shitty move. And again, Sam is the most involved editor I've ever seen. He's all over the place. He's constantly sort of just hanging around. And then he sort of knows it. So this is one of those sort of will they, won't they kind of conversations where is he going to hurt Dick's chances with Ruth because he's jealous? Um, and it seems like it because he certainly tells the DA about them. So I don't know. I mean, I, at that point, I think 
he's probably at least partially trying to show that he's in control. Partially, he's trying to give Dick some cover. But some of it just felt like he's just putting his nose in things in ways. You know, I'm not sure if the D and Sam are friends. They, they sort of imply, I guess, that they're friendly. But it's it's definitely a lot of oversharing. Yeah. And I'm like, she's a grown-ass woman. By the way, the actress was north of 30 at this time. Not that this is something that really matters, but she did not appear... And the character in the movie did not appear to be an 18-year-old dum-dum. She was a grown woman who was a reporter who was willing to go with Dick to work on this story and literally chase a, a murderer and all of that. And so the fact that Sam, who professes that he loves her, goes and tells her dad, oh, they're secretly engaged... And the DA, his his response, and maybe it was just poor acting, was a little underwhelming. He was like, oh. <laughs> he was like, oh, all right. <laughs> Sam is like, Sam's in love with Ruth, and like, I get that. But frankly, she was very kind to him and was like, sorry, but I'm, I'm going in a different direction here, <laughs> you know? And she wasn't mean. There's and- definitely a trend in these reporting it's an undercurrent and again it's the sign of the times which is that there are different levels of reporters and a crime reporter is not the place for a lady reporting is okay if you're a fashion reporter uh i don't it wasn't in this film but there's a couple of times where it's brought up like what wait a minute which kind of reporting are you doing are you doing the crime reporting you get killed that's not okay so i could easily see sam justifying that being like this is not the kind of reporting she should have signed up for she's supposed to be covering insert other beat but she's doing this and we got to get her out of well, it well she i mean she didn't really say that she was no i don't think she was but i there's definitely the implication that a woman doing crime reporting is something that only a desperate person does because they don't have the money or the resources or something they wouldn't normally choose to do that like we can't conceive she's no sue walker okay so oh my god <laughs> all right so ruth and dick show up at the hospital i'm gonna call it a hospital and the maid and the driver oopsie are in the back of the car because (laughs) (laughs) they were scared and they hid in the back of the car yes let's hide in a thing that can move um (laughs) if we're scared so that's what i don't know i I feel like getting out of the house was the only sane thing to do so i actually don't begrudge them i mean i don't know what they were doing back there but... but dick drove all of the way to this hospital, wherever it was, and then they popped up. Yeah. You know, yeah. and I guess this was before, like, women, like, please, women listening will know, do you look in the back of your car before you get into it? Because I sure fucking do. So, you know, they got on this car, they drove all the way there, and they didn't know that there was two full-grown adult people <laughs> yeah. in the back of the car. Yep. And, by the way, two people who cannot shut up, but managed to not talk. <laughs> The whole way there. Okay. So now they're like, okay, why are we here? Let's come up with a ruse, right? So they come up with this plan that Ruth is going to be ill. So Ruth pretends to faint. Dick carries her in. And then he's like, help, help, help. I need a doctor. And then the maid and the chauffeur come in as well. It's empty in there. There's nobody in there. So Dick leaves Ruth on a couch in the lobby and then goes wandering around he finds someone who may be an inpatient there who appears very eccentric this is where the trivializing mental illness we see a person who is apparently an inpatient and who doesn't really answer questions you know in the way that the other characters would like him to and things like that so this man is leading dick around and they find Dr. Weldon, and then Dr. Weldon decides to describe brain transplants to Dick in detail, and Dick stands there and listens. And in my notes, I wrote WTF, question mark, WTF, question mark, question mark, question mark. (laughs) Well, first of all, the patient... Is the Swede, right? He's Swedish? Is that? I guess he's supposed to be Swedish. He does have an accent. I think he's supposed to be a Swedish chicken. 
So he's kind of like the Swedish chef. I'm not sure what's happening. He's definitely got some bizarre movements. And it's it's being played for laughs, I guess, is the is the point that he's supposed to be funny there. I don't know if he... I feel like maybe he knows Dick's a reporter. I don't remember if that triggers this, like, diarrhea of let me tell you about my master plan. Uh, not to mention he's supposed to be dead. And I we weren't even sure that the sanitarium is operating. So I there was a whole lot of sort of confusion as to the state of things. Because for a guy who had disappeared and supposedly murdered somebody and this is supposedly abandoned, it's functioning. There are people roaming the premises and he's in his office. So I guess it wasn't that secret after all. Yes, all all of that was confusing and not addressed in any way. So now the Phantom shows up again in the lobby. Ruth is there on the fainting couch. He threatens her again. She kind of sits there, but then she does faint, and the phantom kidnaps her. Now the maid comes in. She sees Ruth was here. Ruth is now gone. Oh, no. She faints also. The phantom comes back. This is all just a bunch of people running around. It's like it's very it's, – it's, it's worse than Clue, right? So the phantom comes back, and the maid is passed out on the couch. Dr. Walden comes in. And they have a little conversation, and then the Phantom and Dr. Walden go out through this secret passageway that's behind, like, a big piece of furniture, like a big bench-type-looking thing. But the maid has come, too, so she sees that. She sees them go through this passageway, but they think that she's passed out. All right, so now turns out that Ruth has been kidnapped, but she's in an operating room, what's made up to look like an operating room. You know, it's not like a nice hospital operating room. And now it's clear that Dr. Walden is going to try to do a brain transplant on her, okay? And we find out, as Dr. Walden is standing there holding a skull, holding a human skull, that he has tried the transplant before and it failed. So now we're putting this together that that may have been the murdered woman who was discovered there and that why this hospital may have been decommissioned in the first place. But why is he doing transplants? Why? I don't I don't know. And I also don't understand why Ruth is a good candidate. He like he just looks at her. It's not like he talks to her and he's like, Wow, you're so smart and I can he just looks at her and he's like, Oh, you're the one. It's yeah. all you. Yeah, I but I, I don't even understand the transplant part. There's other mad scientists we've had who are trying to discover immortality. We've had definitely some there's no motivation for him to do this. We don't know why. I think he explains something to Dick, but I don't remember it being and that's why I need to do transplants, other than that he wants to do them. Ego? I don't know. That's how I feel. You I know, know, I'm having a bad day, and I'm like, you know what would make this better? If I transplanted somebody's brain into a different body. And you know what? If he is a, an actual doctor, they do call him Dr. Walden. Like, you know, he's got some kind of skill and was just trying to push it. I mean, this is another thing that we're seeing a lot, is that medical professionals gone bad, <laughs> which is like... Harmful. I've worked with a lot of physicians in in my day job with my career, and it's like that's I don't know this this is not a thing that happens. People like don't go bad and decide to like start stitching together cadavers. And (laughs) I'm trying to think of all the things we've seen. uh, You know, doctors do brains, brains and serums, injecting people and and extracting their brains and creating zombies and like so many of the movies that we've watched so far, and just in general that we watch you know, for fun without microphones in our faces that have a physician who's just doing stuff that they really shouldn't be doing unethical at best. Well, and you have to imagine, you know, again, this is early and medical literacy, probably not as well. We didn't have Dr. Google back then. Right. So there's definitely a lot of, uh, they're an easy group. They're sort of the wizards of the time because we don't know everything they know and maybe they could use it for nefarious ends. And certainly Dr. Weldon just seems to be wanting to do it. It's a little bit like we're not even sure what Dr. Weldon's doing here, frankly, uh, as to who he is and why he's doing it other than the whispered phrase bridge that other movie that we saw to this one. So uh, I think he's there just to threaten the heroine. So that's what he's going to do. All right. So Dick comes back and he finds that the maid is there and she says there's a hidden door. By the way, we're now at, 50 minutes into the movie and remember it's an hour and two minutes (laughs) thank god so everything we're going through from here on out takes place over 10 minutes 
very rapidly. They know about this hidden door, but Dick can't get it open. (laughs) So the chauffeur shows up. The sweetest patient shows up. And after much goofing around, they finally get this door open. And then they realize, oh, we should be calling the police. So the maid calls. She doesn't call the police because the chauffeur, rightly so, is like all the cops are at the DA's house waiting for the phantom call there. So she does. And the cops are all there, indeed, with their thumbs up their asses. And they all hot, hot, hot out out the door and go to this hospital, okay, after they find out what's happening there. So Dick and and the chauffeur go through this hidden door. There is a scene where he's roaming the halls calling for her, isn't there? Or am I confused? Yeah, there's points where each of them is roaming the halls calling for someone. And people hand him notes. (laughs) Like like he gets like like somebody – Right, I, look, I didn't even put that in my notes. Yes, there's a there's a because I at this point I'm just like what I don't understand. But this hallway is the Scooby Doo hallway of random crap that just happens where you because we were like it's a really wide hall and then the characters run from one door to the other and then random silly things happen because of course it's supposed to be there's supposed to be people who are mentally ill sort of in there I guess. And he would open a door and be like, oh, no, he'll close that one. He opens the door and somebody hands him a note. <laughs> and he opens the door. And none of it makes any sense and actually propels the plot whatsoever. No, and I and I don't understand the note said she's in Uncle Tom's cabin. That's what the note said. Sounds like a, a joke that's I, probably, I'm, I'm like, probably racist. I don't understand. That's what I'm like. It went right over my head. It may yeah. have been something like... Sometimes when we watch movies from the 80s and we have to describe things to the kids because they are not going to know when somebody makes a joke, you know, about like Joan Rivers. We have to explain to them who Joan Rivers was and why that was funny. Mm -hmm. Um, So I have no idea. I didn't look it up. I just was like, I'm not even even going to pursue that. (laughs) All right. All right. They find the operating room. So Dick and the chauffeur, Shorty, show up. And Dr. Walden, Dr. Walden's assistant, and Ruth are in there. And then what occurs is what I can only describe as a slap fight <laughs> between <laughs> Dick and Dr. Walden. Again, with that little sped up film situation. And the Phantom is there as well. So Ruth runs out. The Phantom chases her. They both end up in the lobby. And that's when the cops show up. And then everyone ends up back in the lobby, except for the assistant. I'm not really sure what what happened to him, where he went. Um, He, like, ran out at one point, and I don't know if he got out of the hospital. One point, Shorty has a gun, doesn't he? Somebody has a gun. Like, Shorty Shorty is completely ineffective. He has a weapon, and then I think the the phantom, like, somebody, I don't know, the guy in the dark (laughs) clothing threatens him and he faints i don't know or maybe no he gets strangled maybe he gets strangled yeah he's he's passed out in the he's passed out in the operating room and that's when the maid is looking for him and she like pushes a cop out of the way it's also interesting too because i'm like look the cops would not let anybody leave like you know she pushes a cop out of the way and is like i gotta go to get my shorty and she runs up there nobody helped him by the way there was a lot of people in that room nobody cared nobody helped poor shorty get up so she goes up there to help him and, you know, more comedy, whatever, <laughs> occurs. All right. So now the cops are – the cops have, like, the phantom. They've got oh, him nice. on the couch. They're talking to him. Pull his mask off. Pulls his mask off. Pulls the – yeah, the black uh, fabric that he's wearing the over cowl. his face. The cowl, yeah, yeah, yeah. The cowl. And they decide he's a harmless person. They're like, oh, he's harmless. <laughs> uh, and I'm like, like, no. He's sneaking into places and kidnapping people, and that is not harmless, threatening with the spindle fingers. Uh, But they're like, oh, whatever. So now the prison warden appears, right, from the beginning of the film, and he walks in and he says, that's not the Phantom, that dude that's been going around in the cloak and the cowl this whole time. It's Dr. Walden who is the Phantom. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. And arrest that man, and that's... What happens? <laughs> <laughs> well, no, no. And then Sam is going to give Dick credit for the story so that he, he gets to be the star reporter and now they can get married at the end. The end. And that all took place in the last 10 minutes, 
wrapped up, nice and tidy, bow, all yes. good. We're all yes. we're all fine here. How One of you? the things about this film is because it's '30s, we're pre-code. Uh, and one of the things you definitely see is there's not a lot of respect for police, which is interesting, right? Like you said, the maid shoves one of the cops out of the way. They do. There's... They do not. They accuse everyone incorrectly. They can't catch right. anybody, and they're standing around doing nothing for half the film. This is the '30s. This is the '30s, folks. So it's uh, it feels weirdly, you know, different uh, because of that. Because that code, the the uh, Hayes Code, is coming. Uh, 1931 is not in effect. So this is one of those films where, yeah, you don't see some of the respect for authority you'd expect to see. And uh, I also just love that she whipped out a gun from her pillow. There was no there was no lead up to that. There was no explanation for why she had it. Other than maybe she's just the DA's daughter. She has one. But there, there was just like a look out, buds. I got a gun in under my pillow in my bedroom. Under her pillow in her bedroom when she was out working and came home. So that is where... A bitch keeps her gun. Like, uh, right? Like, I was like, all right. Okay. Well, yeah, the DA is her dad. And you know what? I'm sure then, same as now, people who do that work get threatened repeatedly. Well, Phantom said he was coming to the house. Yeah, but she didn't really know that. That's true. That was wild, but it was kind of like, woo. All right. You remember this patient, Alphonse? Uh, oui, monsieur, doctor. A wonderful operation. Oui. Too bad it turned out as it did. Mm. Okay, Mike, let's move on to the big question. Is this a horror movie or is it something else? It kind of wants to be a horror movie. I mean, it's the Scooby-Doo horror in the sense that it, it has horror elements and the characters are supposed to be scared, but I don't think we're supposed to be scared. So there's definitely horror elements there, but I think that's for the characters to be that's the, the villains are foils for the characters to be funny or and or frightened and or heroic, I guess. Here's something that I was wishing the second time that I was watching this movie. You're laughing, but this is because you watched it twice. I'm, I'm I know, and I only watched <laughs> this movie twice. Sometimes I watch them more than that, but this one only twice because it felt like I got it after after the second time and there wasn't too many things in it that needed that were like small moments some of these movies have very small moments in them that i want to go through again and try to understand so what i was wishing while watching this movie again was what it was like in theater when this movie was first run would people have been screaming when the phantom came up to ruth with the spindle fingers would they have been scared the idea that someone could come into your house and come after you and be in your bedroom. This is, we watch horror movies all the time. And like, some of them are like super graphic and gross. And, and we're like, ha 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 through them. I mean, you and I go to the movies sometimes and we're like laughing. <laughs> what was the last movie that we were at? It was a horror movie. Jaws. Like, and people were really mad that we laughed. We were <laughs> laughing. <laughs> Evil Dead, the most recent incarnation of it. We were laughing. Yeah, we were. We were just having a good time. And But I imagine at this time, having not been exposed to this a lot, it may have been really scary. Yeah. And the music that we couldn't hear, because maybe there was music. Maybe there was actual music. Heightened the tension. Heightened the, yeah. You know, and especially if it was real music being played in the theater at the time, that's different than, I think, than over yeah. a, a speaker system. Yeah, totally. So I don't know. And it did make me think about how... The things that we do today that we kind of consider mundane. I mean, we like to go to the movies. We do it all the time. It is a special thing. We know that we have privilege in doing it. But at the same time, we don't, I don't sit, I don't come home and sit down and write a blog post about every time I've been to the movies. But if someone had written about that a hundred years ago and about seeing this movie, I would totally read it and I would be super interested in it having now watched the movie. So I do kind of wish that there was something like that that we could have access to as to what it was really like in the theater when these movies were being shown for the first time. Something worth looking up. I'm sure there's probably contemporary reviews at the time. Right, right. Um, so I'll be curious. But again, I imagine the, the movie-going culture was different, for sure. Partially because, you know, I don't know, when it's silent film, can you just talk as much as you want and just scream and yell at the, at the screen? I don't know. So uh, it's it's hard to imagine. 
Anyway, no, I would not classify this as a horror movie. I'm not even sure that it's a fair play whodunit. Mm, it's not a thriller. No. I don't know how. Like, we have this term now that we use called dramedy, where things are, like, kind of wild um, drama, sometimes horror, but then there's some comedy in it. I'm thinking of what's the movie, the the one about where they're betting on what's going to be the next apocalyptic event and it's all the teenagers in the house. I'm terrible. I can't remember. The house on the hill. No, the house. What is it called? I don't know. What, they're betting on the next apocalyptic event. Yes, there's all, they, they're going camping, but it turns out that there's all these things in the cabin and then as the people are there, they discover something and there's all these different potential things. Oh, Cabin in the Woods. Cabin in the Woods, Jesus yeah, Christ. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was like, what? Oh, you mean you mean like the villains are like guys who have day jobs and they their job is to run horror movies for Right, but yeah. but the idea that there's these horror movies that we have now that are also very funny. Yeah. You know, that mm -hmm. they're also very comedic, which, you know, Evil Dead 2 probably being, maybe, being one of the first ones. Yeah. But not taking themselves seriously at all. They And they can be scary, but are also just riotously funny. Yeah. You know, and and I don't think this got, got there, but maybe if I had to put it in a genre, that that's where I would put it. Something that was trying to be a horror movie, but then it went into Laurel and Hardy category. Yeah. It was just, I don't know, maybe kind of a big swing for the director and the writers. They tried something. I don't know that it worked. The People know about the movie. It's a famous movie. So I guess maybe they achieved their goal. Okay, so let's move on to our ratings system, where we are each going to give it between zero and five knives, glasses of wine, and screams. All right, we'll start with knives. And this is our rating of how scary was it? What was the body count? Was it gory? Did it live up to its title? And I'm going to start with you, Mike. Between zero and five knives, what would you give The Phantom? So there really is actually one murder, just that woman who's presumably was the transplant patient that didn't work out. So that's one. I, I don't know why the Phantom was on death row there. I don't actually know why he's being executed. So I'm guessing he killed somebody and we didn't see it unless it was that connection, which we, I don't, I mean, maybe the warden knew that maybe that was the reasoning. So I'm sort of putting this together just now. Maybe that was the reason was because Dr. Weldon had presumably killed that woman and that's what Yeah, he would at. have known, but why was he the only person that knew? I don't I don't know. But um not a lot of murders otherwise, certainly a lot of attempts uh maybe. I don't know. There's a lot of fainting before anything not actually really. happens. Not there's no no. There was spindle fingers. Yeah, that's right. what we got. Spindle fingers. So one spindle fingers knife for that reason. Yeah. I'm going to give it the same. It's got it's got to be a one. I'm going to hold on to my point 0.5 because there might be one that's worse. <laughs> there might be a movie coming that's worse. I don't know. So I'm going to give it, I'm also going to give it a one. It was not any of those things, you know. I mean, the man who we all thought was the Phantom was not actually the Phantom. He did a pretty good job of skulking around and not anybody seeing him for a while. Yeah. So, like, that was pretty good. But other than that, no. All right. So glasses of wine is our next category. And this represents how fun was it to watch? Did it have any unique moments? So, what was the aroma on this film? Like, how many glasses of wine are you going to give it? Well, a lot of times we talk about, do we sit the whole time and watch it? And I'm pretty sure I just got up. And oh, my God, you totally got up. <laughs> I, like, just left the room. I was like, I'm going to go have a snack, and I can't watch this anymore. I did not enjoy this movie um, as much as I appreciate its historical artifacts. So, uh, I'm going to have to give it a one. I didn't enjoy it. Sorry. I uh, I did not get up during this movie, but I will say I did also... I did not fall asleep. So <laughs> yeah. so that was pretty good. Sleeping the bar low. Yeah, I'm going to give it one and a half. It was fairly well acted. There were a few actors that were not really holding up their end of the bargain here. But it was well acted and everybody clearly gave it what they had. So I'll give it that little extra 0.5 for that. All right. And our final rating is overall. And 
This is how many screams between zero and five. All right, Mike, how many screams are you going to give this movie? I think I can maybe guess. <laughs> well, knives and wine are not necessarily re resulting in the final score. It's not an average of the two. Um, look, this is historically significant. It's it's sort of a snapshot in time. So I'll give it one and a half. Um, I, I, I was kind of thinking about two, but I didn't like it that much. I think it, it's interesting um, in what it achieves. And it's sort of a, a great snapshot, given it is a, a relatively new talkie. But other than that, this was tough to swallow. You know what I think, too? I think this is one of these movies that probably set a baseline or a template for a lot of other things that came later, which took these things that this movie did and did them better, more creatively, with more style. So, yes, we have to give it credit for that. It's kind of like the OG of the horror movies that came later with the menacing figure. And I have to give it props for Ruth, who was... Uh, spent half her time being a damsel in distress, but pulling that gun out from under the pillow was pretty great. You know, so I will give it one and a half screams. I did only watch it twice because I did not need to watch it a third time. <laughs> there was not a lot in it that I thought I needed to see it again in order to understand or pull it out. You know, there are movies that I've seen do dozens of times right? And that's because almost every time I watch it, I pick out something new. And the, and a lot of the movies that we've seen in this series were like that, that I could watch them again today, the ones we've seen so far, and probably pick out something new that I didn't notice before. But I don't think this movie has it. I, I really don't. So I'm going to, yeah, I'm also going to leave it at one and a half screams. Wow, I thought you might go too. I'm impressed. I was thinking about it. But the fact that Ruth spent so much of the movie passed out and that, you know, and for, you know, all of the maid and the show for, for running around fainting and passing out, like they, they, they were pretty courageous. I mean, truthfully, you know, they were scared, but they could have stayed in the car or tried to hitchhike home. They didn't, they came in, but still it really just didn't, you know, I wanted that, I wanted that escape scene to be more. So all right, we'll leave that at one and a half. All right, Mike, let's get into the character that you have created that people can use in their tabletop role-playing games that is based on this film. And oh my gosh, who will you choose? What will this character be? I just can't even imagine, but you will tell us. You know, one day this sarcasm is going to backfire. Ah, uh, <laughs> it hasn't happened yet. So. Yeah. So there's a lot of phantoms. I'm just going to say we've had a lot of phantoms. So I actually did not name the character the phantom because there's a lot of phantoms. There's too many phantoms. We have at least two or three. There's probably two more coming. I'm not interested in calling it a phantom and partially because phantom in D&D &D terms often means a ghost or a spirit or something like that. So I didn't want to call it the phantom. Uh, he's actually called the thing. In a few uh, references, so yeah, I like that. Yeah, do call idea. him the thing because he's not the man that's running around. Is not actually the phantom, right? Yeah, and I didn't want to deal with that nonsense. So what we have is Doctor Weldon is actually the thing. He transforms into the thing, so he's both. So we combine the two characters because that's less work. <laughs> um, and frankly, we've had enough. We ha already have a mad scientist who has patients who are minions. So I wanted him to sort of have this alternate identity, but he actually uses it to his advantage because he actually has a lot of his patients dress up as potentially the thing to misdirect characters. So he is a transplanting villain who loves brains and uh, essentially decided that he can potentially uh, do what he did to himself. So what he did to himself is that's how he became the thing is he transplanted uh, brains into himself, different parts. He's sort of a Frankenstein's monster of brain transplants and he's now doing it for on everybody else in an attempt to build an army so he is somewhat of your traditional sci-fi villain but he's kind of successful uh in that sense that he's he's gotten this far 
and he's going to keep going. So I, I like the idea of him uh, being both. We, we try to get the best of both worlds. He is both the thing and he is Dr. Weldon. And as a result of that, he has the ability to both be a pretty disturbing surgeon, again, using movie game terms of villainous surgeon, not, not the kind that you actually want to do surgery on you, and also spindle fingers, of course, and the ability to extract your brain and, and transplant it into another body. So uh, he he fulfills all the things that I would have liked to see a little more fleshed out, pardon the pun, uh, and he can scare people into submission, because that's one of the things that happens a lot in this film. He actually doesn't do anything, or I should, rather the thing doesn't do anything, he just threatens you and people faint or freeze up and and get paralyzed. So he does that. He has that as well. So I'm trying to have my brain and eat it too. Nice. So it sounds a little Jekyll and Hyde to me. So what are his stats like? What are his strengths and what might be his weaknesses? Yeah, so he's strong, fast, healthy. I mean, essentially, Dr. Weldon's experiments worked on him. So he, he was already brilliant. Um, he's not that brilliant because he's pretty bad in some ways of covering up his plans, but he's uh, proficient enough to have this body that is allows him to do all the crazy things we saw him do in the beginning of the film, jump off planes, escape uh, prison, and, and otherwise do things that you wouldn't expect. Part of the twist, of course, in the movie is that you can't imagine that Dr. Weldon was doing that. So this his stats back that up. All right, so I feel like this character could be almost anywhere but maybe might be based in a hospital so where could you see the setting for this character and what kind of adventures might we find him in yeah so he he definitely does well in the old dark house genre which is to say he's in some kind of abandoned place where he can use the secret doors to his advantage um he has the ability to create secret doors he also has the ability to use surgical restraints to capture people and keep them trapped so he can and he can also summon his patient in his lair so his lair could be anywhere, um, but probably somewhere abandoned, somewhere uh, that's got both medical facility-themed stuff as well as somewhere that's probably not particularly well-populated because he'd probably get caught doing his experiments. So he's sort of your typical dungeon villain uh, who ha- would have a dungeon like that and needs a steady supply of potential future patients. So he does best in somewhere isolated. And what level do you think? I don't I don't really have a good sense from his description as to whether or not he would be a really difficult, like high level boss type or whether he's more of a low level and, and sort of throws a lot of his his patients. So he's throwing like his minions at you. Yeah, he's a mid tier villain. So he's, he's not very high. We already have some other doctors that I've uh, and we have them in, in which we'll talk about. We have him in a hierarchy of where he would fit in, in the mad scientist laws of of madness and science, I guess. So uh, he's mid tier. So he's you know in terms of legendary actions, he only has a few. In terms of legendary resistance, he has a few. So he's not quite as powerful as some of the more powerful villains. Partially, because I felt like he he doesn't need that. He's uh, in some ways he does it all himself, right? So he he does certainly have patients who do his is bidding but it's really him doing his experiments so he's a mid-tier villain his challenge rating is actually an eight so parties of eighth level okay and where can people find the phantom that they can download him and put them in their own tabletop role-playing games yeah so the thing he's he is the phantom but he's not the phantom in this case the thing is available on patreon.com slash talion that is my Patreon, T-A-L-I-E-N, and we'll allow that. Uh, that'll be uh, shared for free. Um, it will also be part of my patrons who are uh, paying members. will have drive-through uh, RPG as well as on my Patreon the whole supplement. So this this is a turning out to be over 200 pages, I think, uh, supplement that features every one of the villains. So all 50, plus their weapons and their uh, minions and a bunch of other rules surrounding them. So... The free version gives you a taste, but the full information is in our 5e foes, Gothic Villains. And that's actually a supplement, uh, D&D 5e supplement, to 5e, fo- uh, 5e RPG, Gothic Adventures. So that's already been published. That's on our drive through RPG. It's also available to our patrons. It's included as part of their support. And this will also be in there as well. So patrons will get access to the full suite of products, all the villains from 1 through 50. And uh, we'll also have it available for free for anybody who's interested and wants to just sort of see what the thing's been up to. All right. Well, I think that'll do it. 
for episode 23 of 50 Date Night Screams, The Phantom from 1931. All right, Mike, do you have anything to add? Just remember to keep your spindle fingers to yourself. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) You know what? It's never been a problem for me. So uh, It's been a problem for me. uh, Yes. Yes, it has. (laughs) All right. Thanks for, uh, you know, suffering through this movie with me since this was the one that you clearly did not like. Didn't bother me that much. Wasn't my favorite. But uh, didn't uh, get under my skin the same way it did for you. Yeah, this felt like homework, but it's done. So thanks for listening, and we will see you next time. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to 50 Date Night Screams. Be sure to check the show notes to learn where you can watch this movie for free. The quality isn't always the best when streaming, so we've also included a link to where you can purchase it. You can also get much more information, including the characters from this and all the 50 Date Night Screams episodes at betrayon.com slash Italian. Until next time, don't stop screaming. 50 Date Night Screams is a production of Mal and Tal Enterprises. It is written, produced, and directed by Amber and Mike Tresca. I don't know. Maybe you should wear a brighter color. Yes, maybe I should wear a brighter color. Maybe you shouldn't wear gray. We can't all be the shining, beautiful flower that you are. (laughs) 